0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Particularly when the brain is under these conditions of real mental effort, it's drawing on more glucose and oxygen. When you can deliver more of this fuel, then you can improve cognitive function.
0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Weak to Speak. My name is Sam Webb, and this show is dedicated to ending the stigma around mental health through community connection and the hard-hitting truth i'll be speaking with guests from all over the world about life to inspire and to educate people to speak up so that we can save more lives thank you for joining me on this journey Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I cannot believe I'm about to say this is episode number 57 for It Ain't Week to Speak. Thank you, everyone, for joining this journey from the start. Or if you're just new listening right now, welcome. I hope you're able to get some great insights and some wisdoms from this podcast and this series and from my guests. Uh, I want to say a special thank you to to everyone that's supported Living over the years, who continues to support us in any way, shape, or form. We couldn't do what we do without you. So big love, big thank you. But I want to take this next moment to literally tell you guys and girls and women and whoever's listening from all around the world to take a moment to pat yourself on the back, give yourself some gratitude for what you've done in your life up until this very moment, what you've learned, what you've been challenged by what challenges lay ahead for you, what projects you're up to, and the kind of person that you are and the kind of person that you want to be. Stop and thank yourself for how far you've come at this particular moment and be grateful for the things that you've achieved in your life and be super, super kind to yourself today. Time is going so fast, we often forget ourselves and we do a lot of things for other people and and we, we, we join the rat race of life of work, businesses or whatever it is that you're up to, family, and we often forget ourselves. And I want to make this piece of this segment, The Webs of Wisdom, a special gratitude moment for yourself in any way. You can do it right now. You can do it later on today. Just take those moments out and reflect on all the things that you're good for and the things that you've done, the values you uphold, the things that you help with people, the things you do for yourself and who you want to be in the future. It goes a long way, self-gratitude, self-kindness, so I urge you guys to do that. Well, I'm very excited to get into our next episode on the podcast. As I mentioned earlier, it's episode number 57, and I'm so stoked to get our next guest onto the podcast. His name is Dr. Andrew Scully. He is a neuroscientist. Uh, He's a university professor. The guy has a wealth, an absolute wealth of experience and insight. I'm looking forward to this episode because there's a lot of new subject matter we discuss. We're going to be talking about nutritional interventions to improve mood, cognitive function, cognitive enhancers. We're also going to talk about the impacts of recreational drugs and alcohol abuse and the impacts of alcohol hangovers. Very important stuff, nutrition, diet, the things that we can all do to remain well and healthy and that can decrease future diseases or risks to our mental health or physical health. Andrew is the professor of human psychopharmacology in Melbourne at Swinburne University. He's researched a number of areas of psychopharmacology, including the brain and behavioral effects of nutrient interventions, caffeine, drugs, alcohol. He's the leading authority on the neurocognitive effects of nutrition, natural products, supplements, and food components. He spent some time in in nestle overseas he's actually from the uk originally but it's obviously now living permanently in australia where he's doing incredible work throughout research and and speaking engagements and funding philanthropic movements and and whatever else have you but one of the most exciting things is and this is where i sort of kind of like was a bit nervous is the guy has published over 250 peer-reviewed journal articles Now, I'm not sure if you know what that means. Basically, from a scientific perspective, most of the guests that I've had on the podcast over the last couple of years have been people with a lot of lived experience, celebrities, sports professionals, influencers, whoever it is. I've been trying to make a bit of a focus so that we can start bringing science and evidence to the podcast because there's so much that we hear this day and age around what's true and what's not true and all these different stories we hear in the news and online and through friends and family and i thought well why don't we just cut the shit and let's get straight down to the science and let's get through all the crap and find what's true and there is no better person to get on this podcast than andrew so let's just welcome him onto the podcast with absolute open arms welcome andrew Welcome on to the podcast, Andrew. It's an absolute pleasure having you on here, mate, with me today.
1: Pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you, Sam. It's good to meet you
0: face-to-face via Zoom. I've never met you in person, but I'm glad that we've connected. Obviously, you've got an accent, in, certainly not Australian or, or American, that's for sure. You're from the UK, mate. You're a
1: POM. Yeah, I am a POM from the UK originally, and I can see that you're not a native of uh, Southern California either definitely not
0: very far from it although I'm trying to learn my American accent right now for my acting but that's it's a tough challenge for someone like me
1: yeah well don't lose the Aussie completely
0: no I definitely won't be the Aussie I've been told specifically do not lose your thick rough Australian accent so I definitely won't lose that but mate it's a pleasure to have you on the show today obviously you come from a wealth of experience and amazing background in all the work that you've done over the years do you want to um kick me off how did you get into this field? What are you currently doing? And, and obviously, where did it start for you in the UK?
1: So I was working in um, a psychology department. I was always, I've always been very interested in the idea of cognitive enhancement, the idea that you can improve cognitive function, even in sort of healthy young adults and people who you think might be functioning optimally, like, like say, university students who are the main cohorts that we've done our, our work on. And I was doing some work looking at improving brain function by giving people either a a dose of glucose or a shot of oxygen. And the reason behind this is that the brain is a very greedy organ. So for most of us, it's about 2% of our body weight, but it's using about 20 or 30% of our energy. And that energy is in the form of glucose and oxygen. So if you can improve those levels, the levels of those two, Substrates, as they're called, you can improve brain function, and that's manifest by better memory, by better attention, etc. So, I was working that main area when I was approached by a company who made these high end herbal extracts, things like ginkgo biloba and ginseng. And they approached me about doing some work because they were telling me that their customers were reporting that they felt a bit more mentally alert, a bit sharper had a bit more focus after they took these substances. I have to say, I was incredibly sceptical. I thought this was just some sort of hippie shit. And I, I said, well, I'll take your money as long as I can design experiments where you can't turn around and say, if you'd used this dose or if you'd used at this time point, you would have got a positive effect. And it was one of these perverse pleasures that you get when you're a scientist in that uh, I was proved completely wrong. So, I mean, these were very sort of, Well characterized extracts of things like ginseng, ginkgo biloba, lemon balm, guarana, which is a South American herb, showed benefits to cognitive function repeatedly. And quite often they were in keeping with their traditional use. So something like lemon balm, which, you know, in in sort of the 1500s, 1600s was described as having calming effects, we found in the lab using these techniques that it did. So that led to a series of publications in that area. And I was really pleased because we were able to publish them in journals, which were really high-end journals. So there are journals which are dedicated to things like um, alternative medicine, et cetera. But these were pharmacology journals. So this sort of made people sit up and take notice. When you say you're having a shot of oxygen, the
0: brain's oxygen is starved all the time. Obviously, that's what it operates off talk to me through, what's a shot of oxygen look like? How do you actually give that to someone? Is it like out of a shot glass, like you're at a pub? or? <laughs> so
1: the brain is like constantly gobbling away at this. It's, it's, it's so energetic. Now, what we found was that you seem to be able to increase mental function, particularly during conditions where you are undergoing something mentally effortful. You know that feeling about when you're really trying to, focus on something i mean a task that we used a lot is serial sevens yeah maybe you want to do this sam you know i'll give you a starting number um 972 i want you to repeatedly subtract seven from that
0: okay 985 978 971 964 950. Okay, I'll stop you there
1: and put you out of your misery. When we get people to do that for for five minutes, for example, if you take a snapshot of people's blood glucose, then what you see is that when people perform something like Serial 7s, their glucose levels fall. And if you do a controlled condition, which is something like, uh, say, just counting upwards in one, which I I won't test you on that, But if you count upwards in one, you obviously, you generate more responses. You can do it much more quickly. There's less brain power, but there's much more peripheral, you know, your muscles are working harder, et cetera. More analytical, like I have to think a lot. Exactly. So with the counting, you don't get the same effect. So particularly when the brain is under these conditions of real mental effort, it's drawing on more glucose and oxygen. So during those conditions, when you can deliver more of this fuel, then you can improve cognitive function. And so that was a different sort of pathway to um, looking at specific components of food which have this effect. So we
0: talk about cognitive function. Mm -hmm. We talk about cognitive enhancers. With the relationship between mental health and cognitive enhancers or, you know, your cognitive function, what are some natural supplements or natural food or what is out there that you know any normal person could have access to no matter where they're from that could really help them stay you know naturally fit so to speak or increase that cognitive function or that cognitive ability become clearer not feel so tired all the time
1: Yeah, uh, it's a great question and there are there are many there are sort of quite a few that i've worked on there are quite a few that other people have worked on i guess i know about my own work a bit better so i'll I'll probably restrict it a little bit to that so the answer is probably not surprising so if you look at whole dietary patterns things like the mediterranean diet which is a dietary pattern involving lots of brightly colored vegetables whole grains olive oil over other vegetable oils and first of all you know there are some really nice big trials going on showing that that dietary pattern is protective against cognitive decline but also it can improve mental health so there are two ways of looking at that one is to look at big cohorts population studies looking at hundreds or thousands of people who adhere to that dietary pattern and then testing their cognitive function and looking at their risk of dementia of depression anxiety other aspects of mental health and those have shown very clearly that there's an association between prudent diet you know you have to look at the other side of that which is looking at things like saturated fats highly processed foods sugary foods really you know very strong evidence that that kind of it's sometimes called a western style diet is bad for brain function causes shrinkage of certain areas of the brain including the hippocampus which is a Really important area for...
0: Yeah, what happens in the hippocampus? What what is that? What part of the brain is responsible for that? Yeah,
1: so there's work that's shown that evening kids having a diet with high levels of sugary foods and fats, those people have got smaller hippocampi. So that association is really, really clear. And the issue is, of course, that there may be some kind of enigmatic third factor that makes people predisposed to this sort of diet and also predisposed to... Cognitive decline. I mean, it seems really unlikely. So more recently, there have been some clinical trials, which is our sort of high bar for collecting evidence. So clinical trials is where people are randomised to, you know, one diet or or another. The people who collect the data don't know which diet these people on are on. They're really challenging. The control condition, of course, is 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 really challenging. I've done a couple of these trials looking at the Mediterranean diet, just in student populations and those have shown that even after about 10 days you can show an improvement in mood these are not people with mental health problems they're so-called healthy young adults felice jacker did a a small trial called the smiles trial which was published a few years ago showing that the mediterranean diet improved depression rating scores in individuals with a diagnosis of depression so you know this is really exciting
0: it's a great trial to be ran and i think you know, for a lot of people, you know, and, and I practice this all the time and it's what we talk about with our live and Well program that we deliver into schools and workplaces all over the country in Australia and uh, hopefully America soon. But healthy eating, you know, healthy diets limit limit things like sugars and saturated fats and high cholesterol foods and things like that. But I think at the end of the day, not everyone has access to those sort of food options. And you know, it depends on the situation that people are in. And that's why I was really interested to speak to you and find out from you, like, what are some really basic, simple changes that people could make to improve their cognitive function? Because I know, and again, don't quote me on this, but is there a relationship between cognitive decline and mental illness?
1: That's an excellent question. And the answer is yes, of course. And the other question is, what is the direction of causality, as we call it? So You know, if you're feeling a bit shit about yourself and your life, it's very easy to turn to the the sort of foods that are unhealthy. So, yes, there is. And there are these comorbidities between sort of mental illness and cognitive decline, although they can occur separately. So I should mention I'm also involved at the moment um, in a big study that's led by my, my colleague, Andrew Papingas, here in Melbourne which is looking, it's the MedWalk study. So this is a big government funded trial looking at a combination of exercise and the Mediterranean diet to reduce the risk of cognitive decline and dementia in older Australians. These are actually people who are in these residential homes. So retirement homes, they're kind of not cognitively declined, but when that happens, people tend to be a little bit more at risk. So they haven't declined yet, but they're kind of at the top of the hill looking down and uh, we're trying to keep them up there as, as as long as we can. So that's really exciting because one thing we talked about diet, but the other aspect of this is exercise. So when I was a student, it was absolute dogma that the brain didn't produce any new brain cells. So by the time you, know, you were born or maybe by the age of three, that was a number of brain cells that you... Alright, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. A lot can happen in three years,
0: like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Turn Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com
1: have and you're born with that and you know all you can do is lose them with the caveat that there's a lot of redundancy there anyway we now know that's not true and a lot of work from humans and animal work shows that there are two areas of the brain in particular that seem to be capable of what's called neurogenesis so the birth of new neurons or new brain cells and one of those areas is the hippocampus
0: so what you're saying is you can create new brain cells in the hippocampus if they do die or deplete and stuff like that or shrink because you've had a bad cognitive decline or you've in food or whatever it is okay cool
1: So the other side of this is that clinical trials are really challenging when you look at whole dietary patterns, because first of all, you might design an experiment saying, well, we want to look at the Mediterranean diet. What do you use as a control? You can't make food that looks identical, but is unhealthy. So, you know, you have to have another control. So these people maintain their habitual diet, but they maybe have some sort of um, social support or something. It sounds very complex yeah it's not like a placebo with a pill whereas i mean a lot of the work i've done is looking at components of diet and putting them in a in a capsule i mean it makes it much easier because then you know you give people you know this capsule and then you give other people a placebo capsule and then you can be very confident that the effects that you capture are to do with the dietary component because you keep everything else equal and using that there are a number of studies that have identified components of food, which can improve mental function. So a lot of these are a class of foods called the flavonoids. So flavonoids are found in things like tea. They're found in fruit and vegetables, particularly the brightly colored ones. They tend to be response. What about the leafy dark grains? They can contain flavonoids, but they also contain a lot of B vitamins. and B vitamins are, are really good for the brain. There's some work by David Smith in Oxford, where he gave um, B vitamins to people at risk of dementia and found that the people who were given this this cocktail of B vitamins, their level of brain shrinkage over a couple of years was far less than people in the placebo condition. So even simple B vitamins uh, to have an effect
0: when we talk about cognitive enhancing and cognitive brain function and the improvement of that what's actually happening in the brain just really in really simple forms that is causing us to perform better in that regard like what what's actually happening upstairs in our brain if we feed ourselves the the neural nines which is the dark leafy greens and we do the blueberries blackberries black currants dark chocolate leafy greens all that sort of stuff what is it that's actually happening
1: okay So there isn't a simple answer, but I'll do my best. (laughs) So there's two ways of looking at this. So there's what we call the acute effects, which are the immediate effects of these kind of products. So one is direct effects on neurotransmitters like Arepa, the New Zealand blackcurrant. This has been shown in humans to to increase markers of, of neurotransmitters. Then there are improvements in things like blood flow to the brain. So with things like, say, green tea, and cocoa flavanols, a couple of other things. It's been shown that a number of these flavonoids increase the elasticity of blood vessels, which means that they can respond when the brain, for example, needs more blood. They can open up a bit more and allow that to happen. So, as I say, anything that improves blood flow is likely to increase cognitive function. Other dietary components have direct effects on. The brain's chemicals, like the neurotransmitters, has these relaxing effects, improves attention. This is after one dose, and, and we know that's related to neurotransmitters. One really good example of this, which I think illustrates it very well, is caffeine. So we know that caffeine increases neurotransmitters in the brain, which are involved in cortical arousal, waking up the brain. We know how that happens. But interestingly caffeine is a a vasoconstrictor it actually narrows blood vessels it has the opposite effect of some of these good things in diet and so yeah that's that's a bad thing for the brain but yeah if you think about a balance you know there's a balance where you've got the neurotransmitter effects and you've got this vasoconstriction reducing blood flow and the kind of chemical effects win out with caffeine which is why caffeine improves alertness over the short term but you know if you take too much for example that vasoconstriction starts to override those chemical effects and so you get the sort of tension and you know that kind of tight the
0: anxieties that yeah, the exactly and all. ah okay makes perfect sense so while, while we're on that then and that makes mate that makes really really good sense and there are great food sources and there are great products and, and things out there that certainly can help you on that journey when it comes to nutrition and and well-being for what you eat to help, you know, nurture your own cognitive function and and enhance your own cognitive abilities. Let's flip it now because I know that you've done a little bit of research with alcohol and recreational drugs and the impacts that, you know, hangovers have on the brain and the functioning of all that sort of stuff. I'm particularly interested in that myself, just for, for our audience. Not that people are all alcoholics or drug users by any means. It's more just you know, the, the demographic that we speak to on average between 20 and 35 years of age. And as you know, like you guys in the UK love a good beer. And a lot of people in Australia love a good drink too, well, I myself, every now and then. So can you talk to me about when we're consuming as, as users, young adults, whoever it is that are consuming alcohol or recreational drugs, and they're probably very different. Can you walk me through the consumption of that, the impact that they have on the brain in the immediate term? and then versus the after effects, so that hangover, the the anxieties, the scaries, so to speak, that a lot of people probably refer to a hangover as.
1: So, yeah, there are two sort of aspects to that, I guess. One is the immediate effects. So the immediate effects, you know, there's a kind of whole set of effects on, on brain neurotransmitters, which we know, but probably what's more interesting is what happens at the psychological level. There's a part of the brain called the frontal lobe at the front, which tends to be involved in higher functions. So things like inhibition of inappropriate responses, shutting down motivation, inappropriate motivations, etc. Reining in the limbic system, which is the area of the brain which is responsible for the four Fs, which is um, fight, flight, feeding and mating. So when that is released by alcohol, you see sort of feeding, people eats a kebab on the way
0: home yeah yeah yeah, 100 percent. your inhibitions are dropped you care a little less things seem a little bit slower and that the limbic system sort of gets depressed more is that how it works
1: yeah yeah that's part of it the fight or flight so people become more aggressive and then you know the the, the other f the mating you know people sort of engage in more inappropriate sexual behavior etc they might regret the next day so that's that's really well characterized and we know for example that People just become uncalibrated, their sort of metacognition, as it's called, which is sort of knowledge of what their mental processes are, tends to go. That's really well characterised in a whole bunch of literature on that. What is much less research are the immediate after effects, so hangover. So over the last 10 years, a few of us have been looking at that. It's really interesting. So in terms of psychological function, we know that people are really impaired. So if you put people on a driving simulator and look at the same people when they're hungover as to when they're not hungover, their impairment is similar to if they were over the drink driving limit, you know, between 0.05 and 0.08 BAC. But if they were pulled over by the cops, they would blow zero because all of the alcohol is metabolized usually when you have a hangover. And uh, so we're trying to understand why that's, the case. And then, of course, there are the long-term effects, which are to do with repeated sort of intoxication. And there, we know that the shrinkage of the brain... Does that actually happen? Does that physically
0: actually happen from repeated alcohol use?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you look at the brains of alcoholics, they're visibly shrunken, and there's increasing evidence that heavy drinking in midlife is one of the factors that predicts risk of dementia in later life. And part of the reason, actually, is that when we drink, there's an immune response. So a bit like, you know, if you get a bruise or something, all of these inflammatory factors are brought into play. And we know that inflammation, repeated inflammation, is very bad for the brain. Inflammaging, it's called in some papers, where we know that a lot of Mental health problems, cognitive decline, dementia is related to this low-grade chronic inflammation, as it's called. So this exposure to these inflammatory markers. One other thing that seems to play a part in that actually is the microbiome. So these bacteria that we all carry around with us in our gut. So they seem to mediate some of these inflammatory markers, which is why foods like fibres and some components of the Mediterranean diet are very good for the gut microbiome as well.
0: Does that help just decrease the amount of inflammation in the body, does it?
1: It can do, yeah. And there's also really cool research emerging looking at the so-called gut-brain axis. So what we eat, how that affects the gut, and how that has a knock-on effect on brain function and mental health.
0: Very interesting, isn't it? Because they, they do, men, you know, I have a few papers I've read over the years and books and whatnot, and people have spoken to, I mean, you hear of humans having two brains, really, the stomach and the, and the brain itself. You mentioned alcohol is, is one of those things that can depress your limbic system and over long periods of time and repeated abusal effects of it, so to speak, you could probably end up with a shrunk brain or a, a size of your brain decreases over time. Is it the same type of effect, no matter what sort of consumption you're taking? Same with drugs and, and other things as well, or is it black and white, or is it just It's not black and white,
1: but if you look at a population level, it's definitely the case. So one thing that's really interesting, I think, are the the people who are at risk of this sort of brain atrophy or cognitive decline, dementia, mental health problems, who have all the risk factors. Don't get the disorder. What is it about those people? You know, for example, with something like Alzheimer's disease, there's a particular protein in the brain called amyloid. You know, that's one of the predictors. There's another predictor, which is a specific gene called ApoE4, that, that people carry, which increases the risk. There are some people that have got two copies of the ApoE4E allele, which just means they're at higher genetic risk, who have high levels of this protein amyloid in their brain, but they don't have cognitive decline. So, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, these people would have been sort of just written off as inconvenient outliers in the data. But now people are beginning to look at these as what is about their lifestyle, because it's not a genetic factor. It's not the physiology. What is it that's protecting them against getting Alzheimer's disease, for example?
0: Mate, it's amazing that you've done so much research over the years, publications, talks all around the world, and and the work that you're doing at a couple of universities in Melbourne. It's very interesting. I mean, we could talk for days about you know the science and the research that points to certain aspects of people's lives and and what they're doing differently to be and feel the way that they feel. And I think evidence is not only a big part in the work that we try and put out into the world with the work that we do with living, but it really is an area that I'm genuinely interested in because in a world with so much social media and there's so much news, you just sort of don't know what to believe. And I think at the end of the day, it's really important that we get to the truth as best as we can. And I thank people like you who spend hours and hours and research time you know, finding the truth. I think that's important stuff. Thank you. It's a big topic that we could have you know, spoke for, I reckon, four or five hours on here just about the brain itself. And a lot of this stuff, mate, is very new to me. Andrew it's very new
1: I think it is to a lot of people yeah it
0: is man it is and I think it would be an opener for a lot of people who are listening right now because it's one thing you know having a great meal once a week but it's about consistency I think and I and I don't think you have to be a a very wealthy or a millionaire to sort of to get on the healthy food bandwagon or to start learning more about you know your Mediterranean diet for example or your pescatarian diet whatever that looks like I mean everyone's very different but you know I can tell you right now with my hand on my heart that food, nutrition and exercise has changed my life. I'm not saying that that's going to change everyone's life, but I live and breathe it myself. So it's easy for me to say that, you know. What about you, mate? Do you, do you live and breathe it yourself? Are you on a Mediterranean diet? Is that why you're so passionate about it? Or?
1: I try my best. You know, it's like you say, these things aren't, aren't black and white, but certainly my diet and my lifestyles changed a lot. Exercising, I think is probably the one thing that's, that's really changed things for me. And you made a really good point early on about how often these things that aren't convenient, you know, there's a lot of work showing that they're cheaper, but the convenience of some poor food. So some sort of socially disadvantaged working single mother who's got, you know, little Johnny or Jenny asking them for a the Maccas as opposed to sort of cooking up some delicious vegetables. You know, that's a really, really hard position and that's a, that's a different problem. It's not one that I know the answer to, but I hope somebody does.
0: Yeah, and it's a very common one too, I think, Andrew. I mean, so many people listening right now could relate with that exact comment you made. I mean, how much easier and more convenient is it just to, to stop on the way home and grab something that's going to take five or 10 minutes to down if you're on a rush to a meeting or something like that, instead of going home, cooking up a, a piece of chicken or a piece of salmon and throwing in a bit of broccoli and some brown rice and maybe some dark greens. It sounds like a lot of work, but it probably really isn't. You can do it really simply and you feel a hell of a lot better after it, don't you? That's why I always sacrifice my time. I'm like, I make time to get the extra five or 10 minutes to put in the good food and do the exercise because I know it makes me feel better. It makes me perform better at my work, in my relationships, in my life. But mate, I want to say, look, we've hit our four o'clock hard stop here. I want to say thank you on behalf of myself and the entire team at Livin, very grateful for your time. I do think that we should get on another podcast in the foreseeable future and talk more about, you know, the other side of this conversation, which we probably didn't get to today, but I'll make sure I share everything with our listeners where they can find you. But, mate, do you just want to let people know right now where they can find you if they want to follow your journey?
1: Yeah, so at Twitter, I'm at Scholey, S-C-H-O-L-E-Y. My website is just andrewscoley.com.
0: Perfect, mate. And I'll, I'll share that with the team and with, with everyone who's listening and it'll be in the show notes as well on all the major podcast platforms. Big gratitude and appreciate your time today. Thanks, Sam. Thank you again for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Please like, share and spread the love to as many people as you can. Let people know that you subscribe to the show. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation could save a life if you want to continue this chat please join me on the podcast facebook group at living.org i can't wait to share the next episode with you but in the meantime stay well keep living and remember it ain't weak to speak thank you and have a top day